Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. John chapter 11, starting to read at verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. Judy, thanks very much indeed. Please uh, keep your Bibles open. Uh, We're going to be looking through uh, John chapters 11 and 12 from this week uh, for the next few weeks. And uh, the other thing that you might find particularly useful is to dig out this um, this sermon outline. If you like these sort of things, then um, uh, you can scribble uh, notes. Uh, At least you can see where we're going in the next uh, few moments Uh, anyway. Let me pray for us as we turn to God's word now. Father, we thank you very much uh, for your word. We thank you for the astonishing and wonderful things that we see and read uh, in the scriptures. We pray that perhaps even things we've seen before might grab us afresh this evening, that we might be amazed by what we see. Most of all, that we would want to glorify your son as we see your great glory and put our trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Famous words of the 20th century Welsh poet Dylan Thomas. He was not writing about England having lost the ashes. Uh, Not rage at close of play, you note, but rage at close of day. He was writing about death. As far as Thomas was concerned, no one should just accept death. Even in old age, when you've had a good innings, he says, rave at close of day. Rage at death. 
See, Thomas believed death was a terrible thing and that it should be protested against, resisted. Very different from the words of another 20th century poet, Henry Scott Holland, also on the sheet there for you to watch. He wrote, death is nothing at all. I've only slipped away to the next room. I am I and you are you. Whatever we were to each other, that we still are. Sometimes I'm asked to read those very words at a funeral and I gently refuse. I, I say to people, look, I understand why this poem is so popular, but my problem is it's simply not true to say death is nothing at all. And I say to the grieving family, I, I, look, I don't need to tell you that death is very terrible and so very painful. I say to them, you know the utter agony of death ripping a precious relationship away from you. We can't say death is nothing at all. Now I reckon today as a society we're more tempted to be aligned with Henry Scott Holland, more likely to want to have his words read at a funeral than Dylan Thomas's do not go gentle into that good night. And that is because we've moved so far from the Christian gospel as a nation. When you reject the gospel of Jesus Christ you lose any confidence there is in any hope of life beyond the grave. And so when death hits us, we have to pretend. We have to pretend that death is nothing at all because we have no answers to death, because it takes a very brave person to honestly look at death squarely in the face when you have no hope beyond the grave. We should rage at death, but if you haven't got any hope to it, you pretend. Let's not pretend. Death is terrible. It is the most terrible thing that you and I can face in this life. Death ruins everything. It ends all our hopes and all our dreams. It robs us of the most precious things we have, our loved ones. And here's the thing. Even before death gate crashes its way in, bringing the party of life to an abrupt end, even before death does that, its very inevitability looms there outside the window of our life, looking in. So we can always see it out of the corner of our eye. It's always ruining life. It casts a shadow over everything we do. It's going to come to us one day. And that is why the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is the most marvellous message that anyone can ever hear. Because Christ has the answers to the great problem of death. And that changes life both now and, of course, for eternity. Now, over the next 10 or 12 weeks, we're going to see just how glorious it is to know that death is defeated as we look at John chapters 11 and 12. In these chapters, we'll see Jesus coming face to face with death. And when he does, particularly in a couple of weeks' time, we will see he is not with Henry Scott Holland. Jesus doesn't say death is nothing at all. He is much more aligned with Dylan Thomas. Jesus rages against death, but gloriously, he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just indignantly indignantly snort against death. Why? Because Jesus has the answer to our great enemy, death. And more than that, Jesus is the answer. He is the resurrection and the life. We will see that in these next weeks. Well, without further introduction, let's dive into John chapter 11. And uh, if you've got your handout, 
we're on the first point now, a powerful display that we should glorify Jesus, verses one to six. In verse one, John takes us to a village called Bethany, a village situated on the east side of the Mount of Olives, less than two miles from Jerusalem. And John takes us there to introduce us to three characters, Lazarus, who was sick, do you see it there, verse one, and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And you see it in verse two that we discover that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were siblings. Also in verse two, we're told that Mary was the same Mary who demonstrated her love for Jesus in the most extravagant way. See verse two, this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Mary clearly had a special love for Jesus. And so, verse three, the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. It seems that Mary's love for Jesus was a mutual love that Jesus himself had for this family and not least of all for her brother Lazarus. And so believing that Jesus has the ability to heal sick people, Mary and Martha want Jesus to come and heal their brother. And verse four, when Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now that is quite a statement. First, it tells us the severity of Lazarus' sickness. Be sure, Lazarus didn't just have man flu. He was really ill. Lazarus wasn't a typical bloke lying on the sofa, moaning and groaning that he felt like death warmed up, when in fact all he had was a heavy cold. He was gravely ill. They were worried he was going to die, which is why they called for Jesus. And by this point in John's Gospel... We know that Jesus can heal those who are at death's door. He did precisely that back in chapter four. You don't need to turn it up. The reference is on the handout. He healed the son of a royal official when, quote, his son was close to death. There's no doubt in the minds of Mary and Martha that Jesus can bring healing to very seriously sick people. And so, verse three, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you... Uh, you love is sick, come and heal him, will you? You've done it for complete strangers, now do it for the one you love. So when in verse four we hear Jesus say that Lazarus' sickness will not end in death, there's a sense of relief at this point in the story, isn't there? Indeed, if this were the first time we'd ever read this story, at this point, all the tension would be lifting off. We'd be sure we know what happens next. I, um, I, I love watching Question of Sport and I love the part of the quiz that is called What Happens Next? If you've never watched the show, the contestants are shown a sporting clip and then the frame is frozen and the question comes, what happens next? And they have to guess what happens next. So a footballer has beaten the offside trap. He's rounded the goalkeeper. He has the goal gaping wide in front of him. What happens next? Well, you know he's not going to score. It wouldn't be much of a quiz. So you begin to wonder, does he blast the ball over the bar? Does he trip over his bootlaces, do a face plant in the penalty box, giving the goalie time to get back and and smother the ball? What happens next? And when the VT begins to run again, we see exactly what happens next. A dog runs out of the crowd, takes the ball off the unsuspecting striker's toes and pushes it out for a corner, and everybody laughs. Well, I did anyway. Um, Of course, you'd never have guessed what happened next, so neither team gets any points, but it was a good laugh all the same. Well, look, as we watch the story unfold and hear Jesus say in verse four, this sickness is not going to end in death, it looks like an open goal. Jesus has given the game away. He's virtually told us what happens next. We know that Jesus loved 
Lazarus, Mary and Martha. We know that Jesus can heal the sick, so it's odds on that Jesus goes to the village of Bethany, puts his hands on Lazarus, and Lazarus instantly gets up and carries on with his day job. Except that isn't what happens next. What happens next is that Jesus doesn't go immediately to Bethany. Look at verse six. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And as Jesus delayed going, Lazarus died. So that when Jesus did finally go to Bethany, we read over the page, verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So what do we make now of Jesus' bold assertion back in verse four? This sickness will not end in death. By verse 17, it looks as if Jesus has got it completely wrong. Ah, except this is not the end of the story. Don't be too hasty. As we read on, we see Jesus goes to the place where Jesus has been buried and he asks for the stone that had been laid across the entrance of the tomb to be removed. And verse 41, they took the stone away. And verse 43 Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And verse 44, the dead man came out. The dead man came out. This sickness did not end in death. It ended in Lazarus being raised from the tomb, raised from death. That's what happened next. But of course, those of us who know the story aren't surprised at all. But we really should be even if we've read it dozens of times before. I mean, just think about it. The dead man came out. A dead man is raised to life. Some of you may never have seen a dead body. Desperately, many of you, others here have. And really desperately, some of you have felt the agony of it being a loved one. I'll um, never forget arriving at the home of a dear family whose husband and father had just died. This was in my days when I was in London. They were part of the church that I was at at the time. The man who died was called Joseph. As I joined the family, we all sat around Joseph's bed waiting for a doctor to arrive to certify the death. A week later, I was taking his funeral. Because this family were from a different culture, they had um, an open casket at the funeral. And during the service, I invited the mourners to get up from their seats and could come to the front and walk past the open coffin where they could see Joseph's dead body and pay their last respects. And as was the custom, the first to walk past the coffin was Joseph's family. And it was agony to watch Joseph's desperate wife slumped across her husband's body and crying out with tears streaming down her cheeks, Joseph! Papa, as she called him, Joseph, Papa, wake up, wake up, Joseph, Papa, wake up. Of course, he didn't wake up because we cannot wake the dead. But Jesus did. That's what happened next. So back to verse four, the story doesn't pan out as we expect it to, but Jesus was right in verse four, Lazarus's sickness did not end in death. It ended in Lazarus being raised from the dead to show us that Jesus has power over death. But here's the question, why did Jesus not just heal him before he died as he could have done? Look again at verse four. 
When Jesus heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Do you see, Jesus did it this way. He delayed going to the town of Bethany and waiting until Lazarus had died. Jesus did it this way so that we would see God's glory and so that God's son would be glorified. That's verse four. Had Jesus rushed to Lazarus' bedside and healed him of his sickness, we would never have seen the overwhelming glory of resurrection. This is done precisely this way so that we'd see the glory of God. The glory of God is, if you like, the, the essence of God, what he is really like. This is about God revealing to us how great he really is, that he is the God of life, that he can give life, that he can even give life to dead people. In this moment, we see how glorious God is compared to us. We might cry out for people to wake from dead, but we cannot do anything about it. Joseph, Papa, wake up, wake up. We can't wake people from death, but God can. This shows us how much greater and more powerful than us God is. This should leave us in awe of God. He has power over death. He can defeat our greatest enemy. But had Jesus never done this, had he just said the word and healed Lazarus, we'd have never known how glorious God is. Verse four, this is for God's glory. But there's more in verse four. And this detail is meant to bring about a seismic shift in our thinking. Verse four, no, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Yes, this miracle reveals the glory of God. It shows us how great and glorious he is. But the result should be that we glorify God's son. Now, please see what a surprise that is. A couple of weeks ago at Headingley Cricket Ground, we saw Ben Stokes playing one of the most amazing innings ever seen. And since then, people have glorified Ben Stokes. Ben Stokes did something remarkable. We glorified Ben Stokes. Back in July, I went to see the Eagles in concert at the Leeds Arena. The who? No, the Eagles. They're a great band of my era. And uh, some of them are still alive. And they played. Um, Only just alive, but they played. Um, And since then, it was brilliant. Since then, I've told many people how brilliant the Eagles were. The Eagles played fantastic music and I praise, I glorified, if you will, the Eagles. But here as we see the greatness, the glory of God, do you see it, verse four, we are to glorify his son, Jesus. This is a stonewall declaration from Jesus that he is equal with God the Father. It is a statement that Jesus is God and that we are to glorify Jesus as God. But while verse 4 is a striking sentence, if we think about this incident for a moment, we might find it very hard to glorify God. Listen again to what we've just concluded. God had the power to heal Lazarus before he died, but to show how great he is, Jesus stayed away, allowing Lazarus to die and putting Mary and Martha through the pain and agony of separation of death and loss. I mean, put it like that, it doesn't glorify God. It makes him sound really very cruel, doesn't it? 
If this is God showing how great he is, showing off, but in the process causing pain and suffering in an uncaring, unloving way, if that's it, it won't result in glorifying God. That kind of thing causes people to hate God. The actor Stephen Fry being one of the most vocal on this. In an interview back in 2015, Stephen Fry said this, how dare you, how dare you create a God in which there's such misery, sorry, how dare you create a world in which there's such misery that is not our fault, it's not right, it's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? The God who created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish. We have to spend our life on our knees thanking him. What kind of God would do that? It's perfectly apparent that he's monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, more worth living, in my opinion. Stephen Fry. A lot less animated and angrier, I had a brief conversation with a couple last Sunday. I'd never met them before. They were perfectly delightful. But the husband said to me, I've had some really tough things in my life in the last few years, and since then I've lost my faith. Some years back, a woman in her 50s said to me, I sat with my mum for months and watched her die a long, lingering, painful death. That convinced me there can't possibly be a God. Or if there is... He's not loving. Do you see, from all that we've seen and considered in these verses so far, we might easily come to the same conclusion. In raising Lazarus from the dead, we do see how powerful God is, but in putting Mary and Martha and Lazarus through the pain of death, must we conclude that God really isn't very glorious at all? Well, look, almost before we have time to allow those thoughts to even enter our mind, John writes in the very next verse, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. That is a very important verse. John is reinforcing, restating what, he's, what we already know, what he's already told us. It is interesting in these first few verses how often he wants to emphasize the love that these people have for one another, that Jesus has for Mary, Martha and Lazarus, and Lazarus, Mary, Martha has for Jesus. Mary loved Jesus, first two, enough to waste the most expensive perfume she had on pouring it all over his body. Verse three, Jesus loved Lazarus. There was a great love between Mary, Martha, Lazarus and Jesus. Verse five, Jesus loved this family. And it is crucial, absolutely critical that we know this. Otherwise, we will never grasp the glory of God. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. He loved them, yet he didn't go to them. Now at this point we may not understand it, but know this, says John, allowing Lazarus to die was not a heartless act of unloving, selfish, self-glorification on God's part. The one true living God is not one who pushes people around like pawns on a chessboard, expendable and unimportant. Whether we understand it or not at the moment, Jesus was acting this way out of love. Indeed, it is his love that is at the heart of his glory. This is very important. 
We see how glorious God is, not just when he does great and powerful deeds, but when we see how loving he is too. The one true living God is nothing like the gods of Greek mythology who show their greatness, perhaps their great power, by sending thunderbolts to earth and obliterating poor unsuspecting humans as if they were dispensable ants. That is never true of the God of the Bible. His glory never trumps his love. In fact, his love is his glory. So here's the question. How does this demonstrate the love and glory of God? Well, our second point over the page, and much more briefly, a loving delay to bring us to believe in Jesus. Verses 7 to 15. See, after delaying going to Lazarus, look at verse 7. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus now is heading for Bethany, the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Bethany, as I've already mentioned, was just two miles outside of Jerusalem. And the disciples were amazed that Jesus was heading back to Judea because he had a price on his head. People wanted Jesus dead. It seems sensible to the disciples for Jesus to lie low in the countryside. But Jesus was prepared to go to his death. He risked his life to raise Lazarus from the grave. Here is a tangible demonstration of Jesus' love for these people. He wasn't intent on self-preservation. He's prepared to walk right back into the cauldron so that Lazarus might have life. And of course, that is a small example of a bigger picture. This is precisely what Jesus would do, not just for Lazarus, but for the entire human race to have resurrection life. John is brilliantly setting up a big issue for us here, for Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead, and not just a temporary raising, but eventually to bring a permanent, eternal resurrection. For that to happen... Jesus must go to the way of death. Jesus must go to his death on a cross where he'll be the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world because it's through his death and his resurrection that he can bring about final, full and forever resurrection life. And this is just a little picture of it. Out of his love for Mary, Martha and Lazarus, he endangers his life to raise Lazarus from death. And in response to the disciples' concern that it's too dangerous to go to Judea, Jesus said, verse 9, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It's not really that complicated to understand this verse. The daylight hours of Jesus' ministry are coming to an end. There will only be a few more hours of light before Jesus will be plunged into the darkness of his own death. But that darkness is the very point and climax of his ministry. Until he goes to his death on a cross, his mission won't be accomplished. And the disciples need to grasp this. They need to understand, end of verse 9, that Jesus is this world's light. As he'd said back in chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world. And so if they walk life his way, even a way that appears to be heading towards death, if they walk life his way, they will not stumble. Verse nine, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble for he sees by this world's light, Jesus, the light of the world. It's when he walks by night that he stumbles for then he has no light. 
Again, Jesus isn't saying anything complicated here, but what he says is brilliant. He says it's dangerous walking at night. Obvious, isn't it? This summer we uh, travelled around New Zealand as a family in a camper van. Uh, 23 days, five of us in a camper van and we're all still alive. Nobody killed anybody. Remarkable. And uh, we stayed in different campsites uh, quite often through those 23 days. And let me tell you that staying in remote campsites in New Zealand is very, very dangerous. Not because there are any ferocious animals in New Zealand hiding in the bush waiting to gobble you up. There are no dangerous animals in New Zealand at all. It was dangerous because every time we needed to get out of the camper van in the middle of the night to take a trip to the toilet block, which is what happens when you're of an age, it was pitch black. And so it was so dark that it's very easy to trip over. But taking the same route during the day is easy, not dangerous at all. That's all that Jesus is saying in verse 9 and 10. Jesus is saying, if we walk by this world's light, by Jesus, the light of the world, we won't stumble. But if we refuse to go his way, we'll trip over. So as he heads off to Jerusalem, while it looks dangerous because he potentially is going to lose his life, ultimately it's the safest way. He's saying to his disciples, trust me, keep walking my way, even if it means heading towards death, because through death there is resurrection. It is the safest way. And that's why, verse 11 After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. He's talking about resurrection. Jesus knows that Lazarus has died, but for Jesus and in Jesus, death is like sleeping. Jesus is able to raise someone from death as easily as we wake someone from sleep. Now, of course, usually waking somebody from sleep is relatively straightforward. That said, the first day after we arrived in Auckland, one of our family, I won't mention who, fell asleep and was so jet-lagged that I was literally shaking them, trying to wake them up, and they didn't stir. But jet-lag apart, in the usual run of things, waking somebody from sleep is easy. And here in verse 11, Jesus is saying, it's just as easy for me to raise someone from death as it is for us to wake someone from sleep. Jesus is teaching his disciples about resurrection, about life beyond the grave. He's telling them about the most important thing anyone can know, the thing we long for because death ruins life. He could not be speaking about anything more important. We could not be engaging with a more important issue tonight. But as Jesus speaks of his wonderful power, his glory... The disciples are clueless. Verse 11, after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Do you see Jesus speaking about the most remarkable event possible? He's speaking about being raised from death, and all the disciples can think about is someone getting a good night's sleep to help them recover from sickness. Their problem is precisely our problem. In our heart of hearts, we want a solution to death, but we cannot think beyond the parameters of this life. Here is Jesus speaking of the solution to the greatest enemy we have, and the disciples can't hear it because they've searched online for the best remedy for a fever. Have a good night's sleep. Jesus is talking about life beyond the grave and their contribution to discussion. It's good to sleep when we're feeling ill. See verse 13. 
Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So, verse 14, then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. Here we see, finally, why the most loving thing Jesus could do was allow Lazarus to die. Because no matter how much Jesus tried to explain that his mission was to give people eternal life beyond the grave, they didn't get it. And neither do we. Because we're human beings trapped in this finite world, unable to think of solutions beyond the material world around us. And so Jesus says it as plainly as he can in verses 14 and 15. Lazarus is dead and for your sake I'm glad I wasn't there so that you may believe. Jesus delayed going to Lazarus so that Lazarus would die. So that Jesus could raise him from the dead. So that his disciples and Mary and Martha and you and me would be able to witness Jesus demonstrating that he can raise the dead. So that we would see the glory of God and glorify his son by verse 15, believing in him, so that by believing in him, we would have life, eternal life. That is the most loving thing Jesus can do, to lead us to life eternal. And that is what this is all about. So that we will put our trust, so we'll believe in Jesus. And then we can look death squarely in the face, knowing that in Christ, death has lost its sting. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Our Father, although we have no answer to the great problem of death, we thank you that you do. We thank you for sending your son to do this miracle with Lazarus that we might see that you can raise the dead and then of course doing an even greater miracle in Jesus himself being risen from the dead. We thank you that even though death looms, casts a shadow over the whole of life, in Christ it need not be like that. We thank you that there is life beyond the grave. We pray this evening that having seen this again, we would see your glory and glorify your son through it and that we may believe from the bottom of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.